0: This is C-SPAN's Afterwards Podcast. This week, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison discusses his book, Break the Wheel, ending the cycle of police violence. He offers his thoughts on how to stop the cycle of police violence. He's interviewed by CNN's legal analyst, Laura Coates.
1: We took it all. We brought
0: them to our land. An endless night. amber hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth, we made this curse, carved it in the blood on our backs.
1: We did not see, we could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass.
0: Attorney General Ellison, I'm so glad that you're here. This book is truly phenomenal. And I can say that from somebody who was covering this story, covering this tragedy. And we all knew about the nine minutes and 29 seconds. But this book really tells us the rest of the story of the tragic murder of George Floyd. I want to launch right into, first, what it was like for you to even contemplate writing this book, knowing how professionally, personally invested, really, you are and the entire globe at this point.
1: Well honestly, I felt that it was important to document what happened. Um, sadly, these tragic incidents continue to happen. We've had uh, a number of um, you know officer involved deaths since George Floyd was killed, and uh, if we're ever going to make progress, we've got to not just you know pr- pass good legislation, prosecute cases that deserve to be prosecuted. Uh, But we've also got to document what happened. I mean, I benefited from reading about what happened with Freddie Gray and uh, Rodney King. Uh, Those, you know, know, folks who took the time to write about how to handle those matters helped me get ready for the George Floyd case. So I figured that I needed to make a document that could help future generations help manage this problem and one day end it.
0: And just to think about the decades apart from Freddie Gray, to Rodney King, and frankly, so many cases in between. I remember, of course, I'm from your home state of Minnesota. And just thinking about, and I'm very proud of the work that's done there as well, and you. But just thinking about, there was a time when people did not associate Minnesota with anything besides Prince, which is a great thing, or of course the Minnesota Twins or any of our wonderful organizations that are out there. But the story of George Floyd stopped really an entire world in its tracks, even knowing that there had been so many cases before. One of the things you write about in this book, it's called Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence, was that the televising of this trial in particular was one of the judge's most important and best decisions. Why?
1: Well, because the world got to see it. You know, I honestly had my own... um, misgivings about televising the trial i thought to myself well are we going to lose witnesses because people are nervous about appearing on camera and what ended up happening is that the judge said no, we're going to televise the trial because we don't have enough room to meet the constitutional requirement of a public trial because of covid so nobody no, the audience can't be in the courtroom therefore we're going to televise it that ended up being a good thing because in the aftermath so many people came to me and they told me look uh we were glad we saw it we were glad we were able to bear witness to history uh making sure that it was a fair trial that derek chauvin got every um uh everything the law allowed in terms of what criminal defendants are entitled to and yet he was convicted based on the evidence uh nothing political uh no agendas except for the agenda of a fair trial So I thought it was a good thing, and I ended up changing my mind. And now I have publicly advocated for cameras in the courtroom uh, because I think that it gives people greater confidence in our system.
0: It's a really important point, given especially the times we live in right now, we can't see it in a vacuum. People are doubting the juries, they're doubting people's ability to be objective and unbiased. I wanna lean into further of that though, because it wasn't just that this trial was publicized. This judge did not, under your book, do any favors for the state. You guys weren't given a heads up for the verdict. You didn't have the normal number of preemptive strikes. You're able to strike a juror for whatever reason. In fact, he gave an equal amount to both the prosecution and the defense, which normally does not happen.
1: Well, you know, Judge Cahill was a defender for many years, and he was a prosecutor for many years. And I think that what he understood is that this case must be viewed as fair, no matter what the verdict is. So, yeah, he, I mean, he went out of his way to make sure that he was calling uh, an even game. Right. And we made, there were a lot of decisions that I didn't think were the right ones. And I'm not saying that they weren't the right ones. I'm saying that as an advocate and a person involved in an adversarial process, I was looking for a different outcome. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, I think he uh, judged a fair case, and uh, the fact is is that uh, he had to keep make both sides do what they had to do uh, to, to to have a fair trial. So I, I'm I'm happy with the way the case the case was judged. Uh, as you know, we we have had appellate involvement in this case, and uh, the verdict was upheld recently. Uh, and now the uh, the defendant is going to ask for a Petition for review from the Minnesota Supreme Court.
0: But you know, we're confident. Go ahead, sir.
1: But we're confident because, you know, this case has been rigorously litigated throughout every step, so we, we feel good.
0: What really struck me in the midst of this trial and with this book in particular, is you have been so consistent about acknowledging that solutions and solving problems such as that we face today in terms of officer-involved shootings, officer-involved deaths, the relationship between the community and police officers more broadly. It never can come down to one trial, one verdict, or anything like that. Um, So on the backdrop of sort of the court of public opinion, where this Derek Chauvin trial was really viewed, as well as inside the courtroom, you tackled this issue and trying to figure out how to break the wheel. And you went really spoke by spoke in terms of the learning that you did from this trial of what to do. Why do you think that it's so important to approach it from a not case by case, but societal reform perspective?
1: Because it's going to take all of us. Yes, it will take prosecutors and defense attorneys and courtrooms. That's a part of it but it's also uh the legislature the legislature can't say well the court did its job therefore we're done the united states congress still has not passed the george floyd justice and policing act that's too bad they should take this matter up and focus on it it could mean um more trust in communities between police and community it could mean life or death for some people and it could save careers of uh, law enforcement officers who dedicated themselves to equal justice. But, you know, so far we haven't seen them step up yet. Uh, But, you know, we have seen a lot of local departments pass rules on everything from chokeholds to no-knock warrants. We have seen state legislatures uh, move forward on things like qualified immunity uh, and, uh, you know, the setting up registries so that uh, officers who do heinous or bad acts can't just go from department to department to department with uh, ever uh, with never any accountability. Uh, there has been a lot of local local action, but quite quite frankly, I mean, the federal action is lacking and needs to needs to happen. So I say it's not just one case. Uh, one case is one element, one point, and we've got to get it right. But we can't expect to solve this social problem with one case. You know, as you know, Laura, you know this is a matter uh, that has been going on. Clearly, since slavery ended, right, uh, and, and maybe even before, you know, there is a history of the, the a watchman group in Charleston, South Carolina, which many people compare to what what developed and evolved into a modern police department. Uh, this has been a long-standing, serious problem for literally centuries, um, you know. And as I was writing this book, I read as many investigative uh, studies as I could about tragic incidents of police, um, you know, excessive force uh, that erupted into civil unrest. And, and I started reading them in 1919, 1935, 1943, uh, 45, the, the, the McCone commission, the Kerner commission, the Christopher commission, all the way up to Obama when he has the 21st century uh, policing commission. And this has been a recurring, serious problem for a long time. It's time for all of us to throw our shoulders in and make it, put it into it.
0: Given that, I mean, why do you think this has been such the perpetual problem? Is it because those who are in positions of power are either satisfied with the status quo or they benefit from it? Or is it just some sort of everyday human being benefit of the doubt that we want to believe that those who are supposed to protect really, in fact, only have our best interests at heart?
1: It's both and. I mean, one thing's for sure. It's not only those men and women who put on the badge and the uniform every day. The problem is bigger than that. It really is much bigger than that. It has to do with prosecutorial discretion, whether or not the prosecutor is going to Take the case to a grand jury or charge it out, whether the what they're going to charge um it has to do with the way the uh victim in a police brutality case is painted from the very beginning. George Floyd was uh the, right out right from the gate, you know the Minneapolis Police department said that George Floyd died in a medical emergency, never mentioned force then of course uh we saw you know the, the judges have a deep and very important role. We talked a little bit about Judge Cahill and the in the case he called but he wasn't the only judge involved in this we could go all the way back to the united states supreme court which is the case which is the court that set up graham versus connor which is the legal standard for excessive force cases uh and let me tell you graham versus connor basically says you know if an officer acting unreasonably from the perspective of the officer without benefit of hand uh, hindsight then um Uh, then, you know, if the officer acted unreasonably, then the officer could be liable for uh, and and be accountable in a a criminal court. But if the officer acted reasonably from the perspective of a reasonable officer, even if the officer was wrong, then that officer would not be held accountable. And as much as that standard has made it difficult uh, for victims to get relief, it's better than what was there before. The standard under uh, Johnson versus Glick, was that it was malicious. You had to prove maliciousness, right? Now, now you're getting into the inner recesses of somebody's mind and their motivation. Very difficult to prove. So, you know, bottom line is the Supreme Court uh, laid out the standard, uh, and, uh, and courts all over the country have followed it. Uh, and, you know, so right on down to those courts that call the balls and the strikes in the in the cases that are brought. So it's the prosecutors, it's the judges, it's the media uh, all kind of coming together to protect the status quo, in my view. That's what that's what the wheel is. You know, those things together which to kind of keep on rolling. But I'm saying that the wheel itself needs to be broken because the wheel is perpetuating a lot of things that are not good for our society, such as a lack of trust members of community need to be able to trust their police officers. They need to be able to believe that officer, if I call, they're going to come, they're going to help. Where in some communities, because we have allowed impunity to prevail, people can't say that. And we've seen reductions in cooperation, people Mm -hmm. not cooperating with, uh, with, uh, with subpoenas, people not giving statements, people not coming forward with what they saw. And then, you know, uh, the, the trust issue is a real problem, which creates unsafety. It creates a lawless environment when you don't have that cooperation. But you also have tremendous pressure on municipal budgets, Laura. Mm-hmm. So, for example, over the last 10 years, we've paid out a hundred million dollars in police misconduct cases in Minneapolis. That's and
0: an that's- extraordinary amount to think
1: about. Think about all the uh, all the playgrounds that weren't built, all the potholes that weren't filled all the lighting that was, wasn't done. Think about all the, the opportunities that we have missed because we're paying to pay for misconduct. That is a big deal, and, and don't even start talking about New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, and other cities when you can get into 150 million, 200 million. It's, it's an enormous amount of money that we're paying out to pay for misconduct. And then, of course, well, we let me know well, that, let me
0: unpack one yeah. thing there because I, I do I want to touch on each of the points you just raised, but one I want right. to circle back for a moment to the standard from the Supreme Court because I think that it, it cannot be given short shrift. The Graham sure. versus Connor decision and the idea of having officers essentially be the sole in the sole position to actually judge the reasonableness of their conduct can right. make many people, many prosecutors reluctant to ever endeavor to even charge or go before a grand jury on an issue of police misconduct for that very reason, which is perhaps one of the most striking aspects of the work done in the Derek Chauvin trial, because the choice was made to ask the jury to make that determination and decide whether it in fact could be under this Graham versus Connor and the reasonable standard in the boldness of that decision it shouldn't seem that bold to most people attorney general ellison the idea of let's go ahead and test a particular supreme court precedent but in in fact it is one of the biggest muzzles for prosecutors across the country in their charging decisions why were why was the team in this case so confident to keep going
1: well because we didn't think we had any other choice you know we we had to put the case in front of the jury and let the chips fall where they did. I mean, I've come to the conclusion that not pursuing uh, accountability uh, because we could lose was the wrong decision. Uh, As a prosecutor, I hope prosecutors who read the book think to themselves that it's better to try the case and lose than to simply not ever charge it because you think you might lose, right? I mean, but people... many think
0: that's the standard that if I cannot, I won't even indict a case, they'll say, unless yeah. I can go and guarantee beyond a reasonable doubt in the hands of really juries that can never really guarantee that you're right.
1: Yeah. And you and you know, you've been there, so you know. And I mean, but here's the thing, prosecutors you don't know what the jury's going to say until they said it. I know I didn't know. <laughs> you know, I never know. Juries have a tendency to think for themselves. That's why they exist. And so if you believe that there is probable cause that this, that this defendant is guilty of this charge and you believe you can put evidence in front of a jury, uh, that, that, uh, can be, uh, that, that would sustain that charge, then you should do it even if you don't get a slam dunk, because look, you can meet the elements of the charge and still think, well, um, you know, um, Maybe I'll, I won't win. My thought is give the jury a chance. The jury represents the people, the 12 folks who don't know the defendant, don't know you, don't know the, don't know the judge. Now let them stand in front of these facts and see what they say. And we'll learn a lot more. I'm, I'm telling you, we had a federal district court jury yeah. that, that the uh, three defendants had to face because Chauvin pled guilty in the federal case. And they found them guilty. I mean, a lot of people would have doubted that outcome. You know, we we prosecuted other officers. Let the jury decide it. It's the jury's decision. I think that we have, as prosecutors, must have probable cause, must be able to sustain it, sustain the case to carry to bind it over for trial. But at that point, uh, you're just self censoring, and um, you know. And quite honestly, I think there's a lot we should ask ourselves as prosecutors. Do we have so much social life and so much friendship and so much political relationship between police and prosecutors that we can't hold them accountable? Mm. Or that, you know, is that a question we need to at least entertain to get to the bottom of this?
0: Perhaps it's one of many in terms of what some can view as um, perhaps socially incestuous, to to use a phrase on that. But at the same token, um, trying to find a jury in a case as well-known as the tragic murder of George Floyd, when the video obviously right. went viral. I mean, there is this conundrum that you talk about and in this book, Break the Wheel, between trying to curate a jury, but do so and still preserve the objective credibility of that jury, and not to uh, show the world that there is some thumb being put on the scale. That took right. a great deal of effort with an eye towards ethics and the belief in our jury system. Tell me about what that process was like to even try to get a jury that would be able
1: to do this. Well, it was an open question from the start because of the very reason you identified everybody saw the video. But as you know, the standard is not, are you completely ignorant of the facts of the case? The standard is, can you be fair and impartial? And so what we were looking for is jurors who would admit that they had a bias. And quite frankly, I'm very grateful to those jurors because if a juror said, look, I can't, this is not the right case for me, Get, give me another one because I already have fixed feelings about this, then, um, you know, that juror has done a service for the system because they've allowed themselves to, to go to another case where they can be fair and impartial. In our case, you know, we had to pick through it. No, everybody saw it. Nobody didn't see it but we got we got enough people to say i can suspend whatever i have seen set it aside and just make the decision based on what comes before me as a juror in this case and i and i am sure that those jurors did their duty i am positive they asked we asked them a lot of questions they were rigorously interrogated you know i mean there were a few times i said is this a is this a juror or a, or a, or a witness you know what i mean cuz they were asked a lot of questions and what they came down to was, I can be fair. And some jurors, you know, had, you know, we, we, we had a very diverse jury, as you know, uh, Laura. We had six men, six women, six black folks, or folks of African descent, and six uh, people who uh, who are white. And what we did is we, we just asked them the questions. And quite frankly, uh, it wasn't just race that we were concerned about. It was also, do people have a free, any biases as it relates to chemical dependency right do people have any biases as relates to poverty do people have bias? you know what do people know what do they believe we needed some jurors who would not um, hold it against george floyd that he had struggled with opioids right that was a big deal that was another thing we were worried about you know Uh, but at the end of the day i think what we got is one of the most diverse juries i've ever seen in hennepin county Hennepin County, as you know, is a predominantly white county and jurors reflect that. And yet we had about as even a jury as you can get. And uh, I had some people say, well, how did that happen? Well, it's a statistical, uh, it happens, right? It's within the realm of possibility and it happened in this case. Um, And, um, you know, uh, these jurors were selected way back uh, in the summer, right? And randomly generated through a random system. Uh, And so because of that, You know, we ended up with a jury that uh, we were fortunate enough could could be fair and impartial.
0: We took it all. We brought them to our land, an endless night, ember hot and icy cold, the rage of the earth. We made this curse, carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did.
1: And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga Hellblade 2. Play it now with game Pass.
0: And just thinking about just the, how history and you go through this in your book as well, break the wheel talking about the dynamics that play when it is a person who is a victim, who is of a different race of the person who is the right. alleged perpetrator of the crime there can be a variety of responses from jurors on these issues and things that are baked into the kind of recipe of the cake that still shows that race very much still a part of our society. Let's dig deeper into that jury, though, in terms of what they had to see, because, yeah. as you mentioned, it was televised. And so we all became virtual members in the jury pool without the benefit of that idea, which was an extensive <laughs> worksheet I will mention as well. But yep. the, the the decision of how to curate this case, the sequence of events, the decision to begin, not from that contact with the officers, but instead through the vantage point of the people who found themselves outside of that cup foods. Talk to me about that.
1: Well, you know, um, I wasn't, we all were were discussing and, you know, you've done the work, Laura, so you know, Uh, you know, lawyers and and paralegals will sit around and say, well, where shall we begin? You know, there's a lot of different choices. And I uh, had the benefit of going to sit and have lunch with my brother uh, after this tragic murder. And uh, I was going to see my dad, who's 94 years young. And I got on the plane, went to Detroit, sat down. My brother, you know, said, let's go grab some lunch. So we sit down and he says, you know, those people were like the Good Samaritans. They didn't know the man lying on the road. They didn't know uh, uh, who he was or what he did before they saw him. But they saw he was a person, and they put them li- put themselves at risk in order to preserve his life as much as they could. They didn't, they weren't able to preserve his life, but they at least documented what happened to him. And they were a very mixed group. They were, they were black. They were white. They were young. They were old. They were male. They were female. One of them was a nine-year-old girl that had a shirt that had love on it. And of course, we all know Larcina. I mean, um, we all know Darnella Frazier, who uh is uh, you know, took that video which she which went viral around the world. Those people were randomly selected by fate, I guess. And uh in that way they're like the jury, Laura. In that way they're like the jury. And they had just happened to be at that place in that time. On Memorial Day at around eight PM and they saw what they saw, uh, and they and they raised their voices and they took their videos. And so that's where we began. That's where we started the, the case, because that's what really mattered. You know, what you know, the and, and my brother called them the Good Samaritans, you know, and and he, he said, Look, you know, these people, if you ever wanna if you're ever cynical about uh ordinary people, look at that scene. That's people doing what they can do for a stranger. Uh, And it was it was a spiritual, beautiful thing, even though George Floyd did not survive that encounter. They came back. Yeah, they came back a year later and they told what they saw. And that took a lot of guts.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I was just thinking about how profound the thought of them being randomly selected by fate and having to receive the evidence as it comes in and still come with their own lives with them, as we ask every juror in this country to do, and the lasting effects of what they have seen as well. I remember covering this case. You, of course, were watching it, and you were (laughs) unbelievably um, invested and and involved in it, as, as so many were. Talk to me about the decision to have the repetition of, the death scene. It was very difficult to watch even one time. I used the word very intentionally, sir, repetition, not redundancy, because I don't mean it in a pejorative way, but just the decision to continuously show it. Walk me through what that decision-making was like.
1: Well, it was a hard decision, and I'm gonna tell you at least two reasons why it was tough. One reason it was very tough is because it was gonna put the victim's family through it time and time again. How many times should Felonis Floyd have to watch his brother die on video? Um, And and to make a decision that would make his life um, more difficult after all he'd been through was not easy for us. The other reason it was difficult is that we, we were worried about overdoing it. The jury might get immune or desensitized. We really believe that that is what happened in the Rodney King case. They played it so much and they slowed it down so much that after a while, the jury just sort of their eyes glazed over. But we felt we had to play it when we played it. And that was a number of times because we didn't, because there were a lot of different videos. There was the skycam. There was a video over the scene. It wasn't just the Darnella Frazier video. There were a lot of videos in a lot of different places. There was the people from the gas station across the street took video. And the last thing I wanted is for the defense to say, oh, they didn't show you X, Y, Z video, which shows that my clients are innocent, right? They didn't show you this. They didn't show you that. So we made a decision to make sure that we foreclosed the possibility of the defense claiming that we were hiding anything, and that meant that we had to play a lot of video. We would, we but you know, a, a good defender, and and again, I used to do defense, used to do it in the criminal system. It is your job to poke holes in the government's case. That's what you do. The constitution requires you to be a zealous advocate and uh and yet we knew that 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 those defense counsel were going to be trying to say that we didn't show everything and that the one thing that we didn't show is the reasonable doubt and we had to say nope that is not right that is in fact wrong and so we ended up showing a lot of video but it came with some risks laura and um and we were aware of them but we just you got to run them uh you know sometimes you got to run those risks
0: Societally, with the sheer number that people have become increasingly familiar with and covered in mainstream media, national attention to cases that otherwise in decades of yesterday would have been confined to the local news, if at all. Right. Do you have concerns that people are becoming desensitized more broadly just in the interactions of police officers when you hear about yet another instance that people are are more inclined now to turn the channel or look away than they were before?
1: You know, you know that has worried me a lot. Um, but, you know, when I saw the tragedy involving Tyree Nichols in Memphis, I also saw people express extreme outrage at what happened to that young man. And as tragic as that event was, and it was absolutely tra- tragic, it still showed that we have a healthy sense of outrage when we see injustice happening right in front of our eyes so i don't think people's appetite for justice has changed but i do think that people have gotten to a point where it's like look you know we got into the street we protested we let our voices be heard i made my own little signs and placards and did them by hand and yet you know the u.s congress still hasn't passed the george floyd justice and policing act and yet these incidents continue to happen so my hope is that people will never lose their sense of outrage. I don't expect them to be surprised, but I but I do hope that they continue to be shocked. Uh because if you're shocked at inhumanity, that means you still have some of your own. Uh and and so uh I guess that's how I see it, Laura. Uh, you know, it we are we are getting to the point where we're burning people out uh and but I don't think people are going to be burned out. I think they're going to keep on pushing keep on pressing, uh, and never give up, because this is a solvable problem. And we would be a better society if we solved this problem. And I just want people to remember uh, that that is true.
0: Being tired of being tired has been one of the more motivating aspects of um, a variety of movements, the frustration that comes when people are exhausted by what the, the cycle continuing, which is why Break the Wheel, I think, is such an intriguing book, in particular because It comes at a time um, following many an inflection point, but it offers some pragmatic solutions by having conversations with people who are the community stakeholders. You you talk to the unions, you talk to police officers, you talk to defense and prosecution. Walk me through your approach. Why was it so crucial to ensure that you weren't preaching to people through the book, but you were inviting them into the conversation and allowing the readers to be the flies on the wall?
1: Well, you know, the, the one thing's for sure that large numbers of police officers do not like the status quo. Uh, we had 14 officers sign an open letter denouncing what Derek Chauvin did, and many, many more would have signed, but they were worried about the repercussions to themselves. Uh, but everywhere we went, I talked to police chiefs around the country, all who agree, and even Chief Arradondo, denounce what happened. So, I mean, you can't really solve this problem without getting everybody with a stake in the problem, a, a say so uh, as to how we move forward. I'm going to be the one I'm going to be trying to talk to folks, continually bringing them to 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 a better solution. Saying to officers, look, um your wellness is a part of this too. How much of uh of uh, you know, how much can uh, how many rapes, robberies and murders and can a person see every day and have it not impact them at some point? Part of the solution has got to be officer wellness. Um, I I don't think we need to abolish the police. I think that that is not the solution. As a prosecutor, I I know that private citizens commit horrendous crimes against each other enough so that we've got to have somebody uh, who we can rely on to help us maintain safety, although I don't think policing and prisons alone is enough to have a safe society. Um, but it's a, but it really does take all of us, and, but we have solved more serious problems than this in the past. We can solve this problem as well, but you've got to keep everybody involved. Interestingly enough, Laura, months, four months before George Floyd was killed, myself and John Harrington, who you may know, uh, the former uh, commissioner of public safety, we led a task force, a working group, on reducing deadly force encounters with police. John Harrington, is he bleeds blue, he's a cop's cop. He was the chief of police in St. Paul, the chief of police of the Metro Transit Police. He's been involved in policing his whole life. His father was a cop, his brother's a cop, and uh, he still uh, is involved in this. He and I led a group to try to get everybody at the table, civil rights folks, Black Lives Matter folks, and police, rural and urban, prosecutors, people in the mental health community, all to come together to talk about what we're gonna do and make some recommendations. We passed a lot of those uh, and, uh, you know, but the thing is we can't just, we just can't quit. This problem is worth solving, uh, but it's gonna take everybody. Um, we gotta be honest and, and clear and that might rub some people wrong, but we don't need to be gratuitously honest in in the sense that, no, we don't not honest, but we don't have to be gratuitously sharp and insulting, you know, but we gotta be clear and we've got to. And if, and if the truth hurts, then it does. But we've got to get the real facts out there so that we can discuss these issues and get to some meaningful change.
0: People often try to be reductive in their approach to reform. And um, those who that are, are opposing reform will often point to a slogan and they'll point to defund the police as the slogan right. or abolishing the police as the slogan. Whether there are politicians who support that or not um, it gains traction by virtue of the fact that it still is in in our public lexicon. The Defund the Police discussions have a origin in part to conversations in Minnesota. Walk me through why you think people held on to the Defund the Police slogan um, as a rallying cry to try to undermine reform when that wasn't really, it seems, what was actually intended.
1: Right. Well, you're absolutely right about that. That was not what was intended. Uh, I do think uh, that Republicans, and I'm, I'm just being candid here, thought that it could give them an advantage in the election if they told ordinary citizens that Democratic candidates were not concerned about their safety and wanted to take the, the agency away who would help. Ensure their safety, and so I think it ended up being a political tool. Um, in fact, I don't know anybody who ran on defund the police, uh, but it was certainly something that you heard a lot in political ads. Um, I will tell you that what people who did use that terminology meant, and I and I know some and talk to some and disagree with them, but what they meant is they said, "Look, you know, we've defunded schools, we've defunded healthcare, we've defunded housing." in the richest country in the world, we got people living in tents, where we're, we're not dealing with people's mental health needs. And, you know, um, but we're not, but we're, but the budgets for the police department are very, very robust and large. Is that fair? Now, I think that that question around how we allocate resources is a fair question and an important policy debate. But it's also true that that phraseology got picked up and weaponized. And that's a really unfortunate Democratic candidates and even Republicans who want to get to reform have to be able to say that's a red herring. Nobody is calling for that. And now let's get back to the subject at hand, which is how we create more respect between police and community. And I'll just say this, Laura, if I may. Look, the Constitution of the, of the United States, the Fourth Amendment, basically says that there shall be no unreasonable searches and seizures. What does that really mean? It means the government cannot use arbitrary violence against people. Now, that is a principle every single American ought to be able to get around, right? Every single American ought to be able to say, the government, the the people who monopolize force in our society, cannot use arbitrary violence and force against people. And I think that that, that principle is something that we can come together on. Now, the other, the other stuff, the political rhetoric, the divisive language... It doesn't, it doesn't save anybody, it doesn't help the police, doesn't help citizens, doesn't help anyone, but getting around the language of the Fourth Amendment might actually hold some promise for us and help us move, for, move forward.
0: You know, you go spoke by spoke and Break the Wheel um, on these very issues from conversation with prosecutors, as I mentioned, to um, heads of police unions, historians right. are very much a part of the conversation, judges, activists, media figures, legislators, you go run the gamut of what's happening, Uh, And I, one of the connective threads through all of this has been that old phrase of follow the money. And you alluded to this earlier in our conversation about resources, number one, and how they're allocated, Um, not just the monetary ones, but also the priorities of legislation as a resource, but also the idea of what it costs taxpayers when there are issues within police departments, the amount of money that is going into that. What has been... The taxpayer response. I mean, you're in an elected position yourself. Sure. What has been the reaction to the resources devoted to prosecuting cases like this?
1: Well, um, you know, uh, here's the reality: prosecuting police has not been a uh, a priority for 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 prosecutors for anyone. It's I think that we're approaching uh, the level of impunity uh, that these matters are not dealt with uh, adequately enough over time. Um. But, you know, look, we, we, put, we, put pri- we put priority on prison, on policing, and prosecutor budgets. You know, generally they're adequate to meet the needs. I mean, in, in Minnesota, my office backs up prosecutors whenever they do have a resource drain. Uh, but, we, but our resources are not really in the upstream things that we need to prevent these problems from happening in the first place. Let's never forget, George Floyd was a poor person because he was disemployed by COVID, he was disemployed by COVID, and because the he was a he was a bouncer at a nightclub, a security person at a nightclub, and other places, and those places shut down because of COVID. So he found himself out of money. Um, was the treatment he received because people saw him as a low income person? Uh, and 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 how could we have made sure that he had the resources that he needed? so people wouldn't just judge him based on who they thought he was um the resources that we that we uh that we allocate throughout society lord knows um we put you know we we make sure that the tax the tax structure is advantageous to the wealthiest people uh we make sure that the military budgets got all the money that they possibly need it is true that our uh, police budgets have gone up uh, even in the midst of covid But it is also true that we've got to put money into the upstream things that will allow people to avoid law enforcement contact in the first place, like housing, like education, like mental health and chemical health. Those resources need to be present as well.
0: Really important to think about the prevention as cure, particularly thinking about even this trial in the midst of COVID-19 and this um, and the extensive pandemic, the issue of chemical dependency, which you raise as a concern even for juries, um, and I'm, I'm going back to your initial, initial comment about bookending almost the Freddie Gray case with a Rodney right. King, the views societally about drug use in this country has really changed. The idea of an opioid pandemic, right. an epidemic going on, have you seen, when you're talking about this almost a societal paradigm shift, are you seeing that in real time in your ability to prioritize either the cases that ought to be prosecuted or even people's appetite to be compassionate and still be objective?
1: I think that we have made progress since the 1990s, but we still have a lot of long ways to go when it comes to chemical dependency. In the 1990s we were had, we we had we were approving as a society front-end loaders to bash through public housing where we thought crack was being sold right in the 1990s we doubled sentences and you know really exploded the incarceral state and then and which is also a resource allocation by the way uh and and so today that approach is is we see less often but I will tell you that people are all often struggling to get the treatment that they need. They often are getting harsh judgment as opposed to, um, you know, you know, the chemical dependency uh, to be freed of addiction. Uh, We don't, we don't yet, we have not yet arrived at the point where we see drug addiction and chemical health as a public health problem. We are still stuck in, in, uh, we see it as a moral failing as opposed to, uh, you know, a, a medical problem. And, you know, here's the thing. One of the reasons that we called uh, Courtney Ross as a witness, who was George Floyd's girlfriend, is because we wanted to show the jury someone who got into a car accident, needed had chronic pain, started taking Vicodin, and ended up becoming dependent, right? And that George Floyd got this, got the same situation because he was an athlete, and his body suffered and he had chronic pain and he started using opioids and started and got chemically dependent. And so there we go again, right? We need to, we need as a society to say that drug addiction is, does not mean you're a bad person. And, you know, again, you know, as a society, we're not that balanced because, you know, we tolerate chem- chemical dependency in somebody like Rush Limbaugh or somebody else. But for someone like George Floyd, in our case, we were having to contend with the allegation that, oh, drug equals thug. If he was on drugs, then he deserved what he got. If he de- was on drugs, he doesn't deserve the protection of the law. That was a stereotype we had to fight. And let me tell you, our defense counsel had it in all of their documents, was saying it on television, trying to get the jury to buy into that stereotype as well.
0: And... To contrast, though, that and uh, which I thought the, the phrase that sticks in my head from the trial um, was the duty of care that was owed. Right. You know, under the in, in your care, a duty of care was owed and and what that looks like. And I have often wondered following that and in all, my many conversations with law enforcement since um, there's always this question. There's the rub of when a, pros- when a police officer is prosecuted. Does it lessen the morale of officers and make them want to lean back as opposed to lean in? On the other hand, it's, well, is this going to change the way in which policing is done? Have you found that there have been cases since that you have heard about or been reading about or in your conversation with your counterparts in other states that the lessons from the Derek Chauvin trial have translated into deterrence?
1: Well, let me tell you, the phrase we use is in your custody is in your care. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: In your custody is in your care. When someone's in custody, they can't seek health care on their own. They can't seek uh, treatment on their own. They can't, they're in your custody. They are confined by the state and are not free. And so, in your custody really is in your care. And you have to make sure that person gets their needs met. If you're the one detaining them, so that's what the idea was. Now you're talking about this process they call it depolicing, and that is after there is a high-profile incident of excessive force, police brutality. Sometimes what you see is officers withdrawing because they they get reluctant uh, to be held accountable because they think that if we're doing assertive policing, then something bad could happen. And then I will be blamed for it. But here, yes, I have seen that. I've, heard, I've seen that. I oftentimes don't buy it as a le- as legitimate explanation. Um, and, and here's the reason why. is because officers don't get in trouble for understandable mistakes. They get in trouble for horrendous mistakes. I mean, what's the, so like G- Rodney King was beaten like 59 times, 59 blows. What explains that? Right, George Floyd. Somebody was on his neck for nine minutes and twenty-nine seconds. Is that that's not a close call? That's pretty pretty gruesome. Freddie. I mean, I mean, not Freddie Gray, but Laquan McDonald shot nineteen times. The officer said he was walking towards him with a knife. In fact, he was walking away. So this idea that we're not going to do our job because if we do our job people will think that we're being too aggressive i i don't i i think that there's a lot more to be said about that than than i i think that's a position that needs to be challenged because i don't i don't buy it quite honestly i think it certainly has happened but is the real reason that people fear accountability if they're too aggressive no i think what's going on is that it's like oh you don't like how we do policing well then we're not going to do policing and then see how you like that you know, you do see upticks in crime after some of these tragic incidents. And we saw it in Minneapolis we saw it in other places. I think that there is a certain, uh, and and in Minneapolis, not only do we see people sort of like stepping back and being less assertive to stop crime, we actually saw uh, well over 200 officers uh, seek um, uh, medical medical leave uh, because of that situation. So you know, that just complicates the whole situation, makes it a little tougher. As I said, officer wellness is a key issue and we've got to make sure that we are making officer wellness a priority. But uh, going back to your original question, have we seen um, this withdrawal of security services after a high profile police incident? Yeah, we've seen it. Uh, It's unfortunate. And the explanation I've been given uh, has not, I have not found convincing
0: it strikes me as though on the a more optimistic slant of it though that part of the legacy of this tragedy if one could find a kind of silver lining has been that the experts that were used in this trial the idea of the exposure of and the transparency of experts condemning the actions and the police practices or the the nature of the use of force have you seen that it's had a positive impact on the training of other police officers and other departments?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the way that the Memphis Police Department responded to Ty- Tyree Nichols, I think was a, was a, an excellent response. It was a tragic situation, one that no one would ever want. But given that that tragic incident occurred, you saw the, the chief step up, uh, released information quickly, um the pro- the investigation was was swift uh there was a lot of uh, videotape got released after the officers were able to review it i i think that that is an example of lessons being absorbed being learned um i also will tell you that i think that you have a lot more police um officers who who uh, who will stand up and say that's wrong uh which is very important right uh we've got to have a situation where um officers feel comfortable saying w- that you know that what when they see something that is improper and right that it is that is nothing they can stand behind you know i think that that is just another thing we've seen more we've seen local governments respond we've seen in minneapolis we've mm-hmm. had they, the city council and the mayor passed a policy for uh, no knock warrants chokeholds things like that and we're seeing more action on the local level Still need to see some on the federal level. But uh, I cannot agree with folks who say nothing has been done. A lot has been done. More needs to be done.
0: You know, Attorney General Ellison, there was a time when you were called Congressman Ellison at that federal level. I remember speaking to you when you had decided to make the transition from a member of Congress to the attorney general's office um, and successfully so. As many or maybe people don't always realize, you were the first African-American and the first Muslim-American to be elected statewide in an office in Minnesota. There is a lot of power to be harnessed and wielded at the congressional level. Why did you choose this position? Is it because you were perhaps prescient and realizing that the front lines is really at the state level?
1: Well, the reason is is that I, I'm in it for the public service. That's why I want to do it. And I was privileged and honored to be in Congress for 12 years. Uh, but, you know, as, as Attorney General, I'm able to try to impact problems on a regular and daily basis. I was available to be uh, involved in this case, but then there have been a number of others. I mean, we, you know, we've been able, at, at, the, at Minnesota AG, We've actually brought cases against uh vapors like jewel that's public that's that's protecting the public the the lungs of our young people. We brought them to a a settlement last week of sixty point five million dollars for the people of the state of Minnesota to compensate that loss. I mean we're on the front lines when it comes to trying to deal with Kia and Hyundai, which are uh two automakers whose cars are stolen far, far far more than any other brand. We're trying to make them more accountable, make their cars a little bit more like other cars, which are harder to steal. You know, we're, we're doing stuff on guns. We're trying to hold the gun traffickers accountable. We've actually filed a lawsuit there. And so it, it's It's being on the front lines. I, I'm in it for the service. I'm in it for trying to make people's lives different and better. Uh, I'm into bringing more balance. I, I want to be a voice for those police officers who do their job well every day and love doing their job and want to do it right, um, you know, I, that's what, what I want to do. I mean, Washington is great, but, you know, it is two-and-a-half-hour plane ride from my home. I'd rather be at home, in the mix, sleeves rolled up, fighting the good fight.
0: Well, it strikes me that you are in a unique position to be able to have seen the landscape and to have chosen where you think your service is most needed This book, Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence, really goes into detail on just how you can be as productive as you can with a blueprint in front of you to solve one of the nation's most long-lasting crises. Thank you so much for this conversation, Attorney General Keith Ellison. It was a
1: pleasure. Thank you, Laura. We'll talk to you soon. Yes. Thanks for listening to this
0: week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear
1: authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts.